If you've ever seen Bob Skaggs, Michael McDonald, and even Steely Dan in concert at some point over the past 20 years, chances are you've witnessed guitarist Drew Zing. Born and raised in New York City, Zing earned his reputation as a guitarist that knows no boundaries when it comes to musical styles. Having spent nearly 10 years in the New York club scene, backing artists such as Sean Colvin and Lucy Kaplansky, as well as lending his talents to jingles, Broadway productions, and session work, Drew found himself alongside Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, touring with the New York Rock and Soul Review. This opened the door for Drew, who eventually spent two years as Steely Dan's guitarist and music director, and has toured with Boss Gag since 1996. On November 1st, Drew is set to release his debut self-titled solo album that contains original material, as well as a few covers with unique arrangements that were recorded and produced by Drew's longtime friend, George Pettit. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Drew Zing. Hey, Drew, thanks for joining us today. Hey, how are you doing? Welcome. Good. Hey, uh, you know, I was, I was browsing through some of the credits on your website, and, and I noticed uh, one that I found that was a little, little amusing, and that being Guitar Magazine had you listed as one of the 12 best guitar players that you've never heard of. You know, and I, I, I kind of <laughs> laughed because I, I think that I was thinking about, you know, who reads that magazine? You know, it's guitar aficionados. And, <laughs> you know, they probably have heard of you or know your work over the years. And, uh, you know, of course, Eddie and I have known about you for a long time. But, you know, I guess for those listening today, if you've, if you've never heard of Drew, we're here to help spread the good words. Absolutely. <laughs> no <doubt. laughs> Thank you. So you're a native of New York, right? I mean, did you, did you grow up in the city or somewhere outside of the city? I grew up in Manhattan. Okay. Born and raised All right. in Manhattan Island. You know, just thinking about that, you know, your youth, you know, when did you first pick up guitar? I mean, do you remember the model guitar you were first playing, you know, when, when, you, when oh. you picked one up? Well, um, I think my brother got a guitar for Christmas, and um, this is around the time the Beatles came out, and I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of blown away. And then I saw A Hard Day's Night right after that, and, you know, I was like, like six years old, but it really had a, a deep emotional impact on me, you know, the, the, the hardest night and, and, um, mm-hmm. the Ed Sullivan show, you know, and it just kind of, from that point on, I was always playing the guitar and that was just, um, just an acoustic that was lying around the house. So from the time I was about six, I was always playing the guitar and then I got a couple of, uh, like Japanese electrics. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of Jimi Hendrix's when he first came out. I heard Purple Haze on the radio when I was, I guess, nine years old up in New England. I was in, uh, uh, summer camp, yeah, and Purple Haze had not been a hit anywhere. I don't think he'd, he'd actually like he maybe he just played Monterey, but um, mm-hmm. nobody had heard of him. And I just heard that song, and I was like, wow, that that just it just blew my mind. And um, uh, so I was a huge fan of Hendrix from the time I was nine, and uh, saw him when I was ten, actually. Um, really, and uh, yeah, I saw him at the Little Theater at a place called Hunter College, which was actually four blocks away from my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived on um, on 72nd Street on on the east side, yeah. and Hunter College was on 68th Street. So my brother and I, who was about, my brother's about two years older than me, we, we walked four blocks to see Hendrix, and I think we paid, you know, $2 or something. Holy cow. In a little theater there. And, um, you know, you can find, actually, that, that concert on, on uh, you know, they, they have a, whole database of Hendrix concerts. It was, uh, it was, I think, his first real tour under his own name in the States. Um, in the, it was in March of 68. But anyway, so I, I, you know, was very, very, you know, heavily influenced by his first album. And uh, at that point, I think I had a, a Japanese electric guitar, which <laughs> at that point, um, they were actually economy models. But now, of course, Japanese guitars are known for their Excellence, but um, yeah, yeah. at the time that was all, that was all I could afford. So, yeah. you know, I think I uh, at Sears, I think I paid you know like eighty bucks for a uh, Japanese electric guitar, <laughs> and uh, I had that for a couple of years. And then my first real guitar was it was around the time that the movie Woodstock came out. I was a huge Peter Townsend fan yeah. and a huge Carlos Santana fan, of course. Um, and they both were using um, SGs, Gibson SG, yeah. which is a, a small, light, solid-body guitar. And um, so that influenced me, and I think it was the first real instrument I bought. So yeah. Uh, yeah. that was my main axe for a few years. I guess I got that when I was, gosh, around 11. Wow. You're essentially a self-taught musician, right? Uh, um... That is pretty, pretty, yeah, that's pretty much correct. I mean... Uh, I, I think I got, I learned most of my stuff from listening 
and transcribing solos from from albums and back in the days of reel to reel I would mm-hmm. record a lot of stuff on on reel to reel tape and slow it down to half speed right you know to use the record player and drop the needle you know on the record <laughs> and play it over and over again you know it's, yeah. it was so much harder then than it is now oh yeah yeah, yeah. We now can... they, have, they have computer programs i use uh, one now called the amazing slowdowner and it's um it's just incredible i mean you can you can do anything with music now you, can, you know totally elastic yep. change the keys change the tempos change everything so yeah i think anybody who's who's listening uh, to the podcast today can identify with that if you if you grew up you know playing by ear whether it's piano guitar i mean everybody's dropping the needle just like you said over that same right. that same phrasing on that lp you know and you yeah, go yeah. over and over and over again until you get it right, right. and uh, you're right it's right. Uh, things have changed haven't they <laughs> yeah it sure is a lot easier yeah Sure. Well, you you actually studied art history at Vassar, you know. Um, that is that is correct. Yeah. That's because um, n- nobody in my family was a musician. I uh-huh. didn't know anybody who was a musician, and it just didn't seem, um, you know, I, I just I wasn't part of that world, and it didn't seem like at all a possibility. But you know, the music just kept pulling me pulling me in, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I never abandoned it. But I, I went to college not knowing what I was going to do, although I'd been playing guitar pretty much my whole life at that point, and uh, didn't know what my major would be, and they had a fantastic uh, department there at Vassar of Art History. It was one of the best, I think, art history departments in in the country. And, uh, you know, that pulled me in. I I was a great lover of art, so I did that. I took took that for, uh, I guess, about three years, and then I was still playing music, and the, the tug of the music was stronger and stronger. And then I had like one more year to to go till I graduated, and I decided to take a year off from college and mm-hmm. spend a year in New York, where I you know was from, and see if I could do anything with it. Um, but I did actually go back to get the degree because I only had one year left after I had kind of made up my mind to be to give the guitar a shot. Good for you. But uh, that's that's the only the only reason why uh, I never you know. And at the time, I wasn't. Um, I mean, the options to go to music school, there was like uh, Berklee School of Music in mm-hmm. Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there were, there were so many options as there are now. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that Berklee was a little bit more straight ahead jazz than what where I was coming yeah, from at exactly. the time. Yeah. Of course, I, uh, you know, now I, I really wish I had gotten a, a really good formal training and uh, and gotten all the uh, all the, the techniques, you know, to 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 read well and and all the, uh, the, the theory. But uh, basically, I taught myself from uh, a lot of books and, and records. Yeah. That's how it, it came about. Yeah. And, you know, I would think that a lot of your education was actually, you know, stepping into that New York City scene after you graduated from college. I mean, you, you know, you were playing gigs with Sean Colvin and Lucy Kaplansky. I mean, tell me about this early part of your career and, and what you were experiencing. And, and uh, was, it, was it a tough road to uh, make a name for yourself, or were you fortunate enough to pick up gigs on a consistent basis? Well, you know, it, it really took a long, long time. I mean, I gave it about 10 years. I, I said, you know, I'll give this about 10 years and see, and see if anything happens, and if it doesn't, then forget about it. Mm-hmm. And literally, it took me almost exactly 10 years between the time I yeah. left college until I, I I got any kind of a career going, um, it you know it was really rough. I'm, I was never great at pounding the pavement and you know getting out there and uh, and uh, you know uh, selling myself. I was pretty shy about that. Um, but I I landed you know in New York and um, I, I play. I had the opportunity to play with a lot of great singer songwriters on Bleecker Street. And um, there was yeah. a club there called Kenny's Castaways, which just closed mm-hmm. a couple days ago, I think, like last week or something. Oh, wow. And I got in there, and I got, you know, kind of, there was a scene there, and I got to know a lot of singer-songwriters. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, um, I, I ended up playing with, uh, you know, some really great, fantastic artists uh, just through that scene. And, you know, uh, Sean was one of them, and Lucy was another. And um, that's the thing about New York that was... I always uh, struck me was that every single gig you did or you do there matters. Like mm-hmm. every time you go on the stage, mm-hmm. and as a matter of fact, every time you go in the studio or do anything, mm-hmm. you have the sense that anything is possible, that yeah. anybody can walk in the door, uh-huh. um, that anything can happen to your career. And it, it kind of gives, it's like a crucible where it kind of like gives us, you know, 
kind of crazy energy to everything you do there. And it, it's really true. I mean, you know, I was doing a gig at Kenny's once, and um, Jocko Pastorius walked in the door, and mm-hmm. uh, I was actually playing with this bass player named Hugh McDonald, who is uh, a great bass player who uh, plays with Bon Jovi now. But um, we're just doing a bar gig, and, and Jocko walks in and stands directly in front of Hugh McDonald and just stares him down, right? <laughs> like, give me the bass, you know? <laughs> and it's Jocko. So eventually, after like a tune, you know, Hugh, Hugh says, okay, Jocko, go ahead. You know, and then I, I ended up jamming with Jocko, you know, so, and that was at Kenny's Cast Boys. So it's just like, things like that would happen. And, um, any, you know, that's the way New York is. Anything can happen at yeah. any given time. And, yeah. you, know, you know, you eventually, a lot of your friends start getting uh, gigs and, uh, uh, you know, Luckily, after a while, you know, um, your fortunes hopefully change and you uh, get into a little bit, you know, more professional situations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A follow-up on that is, you know, you're talking about these amazing musicians that um, could at any time, you know, cross your path. And there you are in a club and and there's somebody there. And it it happens all the time. But, um, you know, when you set out professionally, you know, how, how did you see yourself and your own style fitting into to what's happening? Were you letting it, were you, I mean, what, what, what were you playing? I mean, what, what were the things that, uh, that were coming out of your music, you know? Well, you know, the, the thing about me is I, I could never really define exactly what um, my style would be because I, I loved so much. I mean, I was like into Hendrix, but I was also into Django Reinhardt and, you know, of course, Pat Metheny and mm-hmm. John Schofield and, and uh, I loved all these country players. So, I mean, I was kind of like, it was kind of a perfect path for me to be a sideman um, in New York because I do love all all kinds of music. You know, mm-hmm. I do to this day absolutely. I'm crazy about the Beatles and uh, you know love jazz as well. Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Wes Montgomery. And so I was just happy to play music, to be honest. And and it didn't really matter to me what style it was. And it turned out that it started out just being with a lot of singer-songwriters, and that's kind of how I got my start. Um, I wasn't playing jazz gigs by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really had not had any, any jazz training, and I tried to teach myself how to play jazz. But, um, yeah, I did, that's, that's uh, the scene I was coming out of, was um, basically the singer-songwriter scene, and I was just a, yeah. uh, a side guy. And I was extremely happy to be in that role, you know, and uh, always have been, actually. Yeah. Um, which is kind of why it's taken me about 40 years to make my own own album. <laughs> well, you know, I love the story about how you connected uh, with Donald Fagan. And, and tell us a little bit about how, how a, a bandmate of yours at the time, I, I believe his name was Jeff Young, introduced Donald to your band and how you uh, ended up on that New York Rock and Soul Review project. Yeah, Jeff, um, Jeff is a wonderful singer and um, songwriter and keyboard player. Um, fantastic voice, fantastic player. And um, he was involved in, um, actually, it was a show at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, I believe, that uh, Donald became a fan of. It was um, an interpretation of the Greek tragedy Oedipus at Colonus, and okay. it was done in a gospel style. And wow. uh, Donald, Donald went to see that show, and I think he was uh, a big fan of it. So he, um, he became interested in Jeff, and uh, Jeff started singing with uh, Donald, doing these little... Um, R&B gigs around town. Um, this is actually right before the Rock and Soul Review. Okay. And uh, Jeff said, you know, I've got a band that I play with, which was the band that I was playing with with Jeff. And um, so he picked up the whole band at that time, which was basically <laughs> the band that did the Rock and Soul album, the Live at the Beacon Theater. Look at that. Well, you know, a little later on in the show, uh, we're going to focus on your debut solo album that uh, is going to be coming out on November 1st. But I want to take a quick break and I want to play a track from the album. And uh, this one is called Tennessee Street.
Hey, we've got a question from uh, Uwe Reif, who's a uh, correspondent of ours who's over in Germany. And it's actually, I don't really think it's much of a question, but it's a comment, and maybe you could expand upon it a little bit. But he says, mm-hmm. he says, uh, Drew, I remember the guitar sound on the New York Rock and Soul Review CD very well. He said the sound, which he says probably came from a, a Gibson 30, 335 semi-acoustic guitar, contained some Larry Carlton chops added by interesting speedy techniques that, in his, in his opinion, sounded like sweep picking. And he just wanted, I think he just wanted you to comment on that uh yeah i've tried to to do that um as opposed to up and down i don't know what the other method of picking is called but yeah i i I like to do that i try to to not necessarily use it as a as a technique for speed but i just think it sounds a little bit more smooth it's kind of a blues technique where you brush across the strings um when you're doing an arpeggio Mm -hmm. um but yeah that's that's absolutely true and um it is a 335. It's a, a beat up 1969 335 that I bought mm-hmm. in the mid 80s, and it was just it, it doesn't look at all uh, like anything. It's not pretty. It's brown, but uh, it's for some reason it's it's uh, really speaks to me. And I've tried a lot of other guitars, but I keep coming back to that one. Yeah. And it's made. It's the same guitar that I use in Rock and Soul, and um, I think I pretty much use it exclusively on on the uh, album. The, um, the solo album. Yeah. Hey, after you know the Rock and Soul Review Project, you ended up uh, you know touring all over the country with it. I mean, which ultimately blossomed into landing you a spot on the Steely Dan reunion tour, mm-hmm. which I think was back in '93. And you know, right. you continued to tour with them, I think, through '95. And tell me about this experience. You know, working with Fagan and Becker. I mean, did you grow up? I'm sure you probably grew up listening to Steely. Or had was I did. I was a huge fan um, from the time their first album came out. I was a guitar player. Yeah. Uh, and I think. You know, I think I actually, for some reason, I, 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 I had older brothers that were would always turn me on to music, yeah. and uh, I think I got the album as soon as it came out. I don't, I, I, I didn't even need to, you know, it wasn't the, the single that made me buy the album. I just was, mm-hmm. for some reason, I had the album, and um, you know, reeling the years, of course, the great Elliot Randall yeah. guitar sound and solo just, you know, totally blew me away, and. Uh, I was a big fan of of their records, their writing, um, and and their guitars uh, on all the records. So I was actually, you know, you asked me about how I taught myself the guitar. That was one yeah. of the ways was actually listening to <laughs> Dan records. Yeah. So um, you know, I memorized a lot of the solos, and uh, yeah, so it was it was kind of surreal to end up you know playing with them. Um, it was it was pretty pretty exciting. But you know, if somebody had given me that gig uh, out of the blue, I don't, I don't know what I would have. I probably would have freaked out. But I had, <laughs> you know, the thing with Donald and the Rock and Soul Review happened yeah. so gradually. Yeah, yeah. That it just seemed like a natural uh, extension. You know, it wasn't it wasn't uh, that you know as bizarre as it might sound. But mm-hmm. uh, right, right. Because I. I felt fairly, fairly comfortable, and you know uh, the, the other thing is that they they had this myth of being taskmasters, and it's true. It's absolutely true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. The myth is true. But, you know, it, you know, it, 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 I didn't really sense that at all. I mean, you know, they were very laid back, uh, as far as I, I was concerned. They yeah. were, you know, really, yeah. really friendly and funny, and uh, you know, not as scary as <laughs> one might imagine. Right. right you know? Yeah. Hey, Drew, it's, it, it, who can deny that Steely Dan, you know, they've had such a lineage of incorporating such really amazing guitarists into their inner circle of musicians. And so, so you come along and, you know, you know, you had to feel as if you were joining a pretty elite group. I mean, you had to feel that way. But uh, Well, I'll tell you what, how it made me feel. It, it, it actually really kicked me in the butt because I thought, you know, what am I doing here? And, yeah. and with this, like you say, this, this lineage... Um, I just have to be at absolute peak performance. So in that way, uh, you know, it was really, really uh, beneficial. You know, I mean, if you're striving to do your best at every given moment, um, you know, it really, it's it's very beneficial uh, to mm-hmm. your to your craft. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one thing I did notice was. Uh, it, it, it was so easy for me to play with them. Um, there's something about the way Walter and Donald write that kind of just leaves a space open for guitar to kind yes. of, you know, just do its thing. And and it was so it, it was just very enjoyable to to play those tunes. You know, it's a really really fun gig to play. Yeah, 
yeah. um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of space for guitar, and it's a very interesting chair. Yeah. So you know all those all those things combined. That's basically the approach that I had. Was I was just really really scared to not do as you know good as I possibly could. Yeah. Um, that was the only <laughs> the only real uh, attitude I had toward it was basically uh, pet you know petrified <laughs> you know fear. Yeah. Was uh, you know the way it uh, came across. Well, you know, this this whole Steely connection, I was thinking about this, you know, proved probably to be a pretty important encounter, you know, particularly through that New York Rock and Soul Review project, which, you know, I'm assuming was your first connection to Boz and Michael McDonald. Is is that right? That is that is correct. Okay. Yes. All right. Um, I met uh, Boz there and uh, and Michael, and uh, we, we, we all went on tour. Well, we you know, we did the show at the Beacon Theater, mm-hmm. which was recorded for the album, and then we did a tour. Which uh, which was very very pleasant, and Phoebe Snow was on that. Right, right. Yeah, so it was you know we were it was uh, a nice little group, um, and we were all just hanging out together, and uh, it was just a a nice uh, laid back kind of you know situation, and uh, we all got along great. So uh, you know uh, it was a very nice that uh, I I got a chance to. Um, to meet Boz and Michael through that situation. Yeah. So, you know, when you're not touring, you know, you've got a lot of other projects that keep you busy. And, you know, one thing that I, I've, you know, this I caught this from your website and I didn't realize this, but you, uh, you've you done quite an extensive amount of, of jingle work, uh, you know, especially in the New York area. You know, if jingles aren't, you know, as prominent as they once were, but are you still involved in doing that, that kind of thing? No, I actually live in San Francisco now. Right, I knew that, yeah. Yeah. So I just and, wondered, uh, yeah. So no, yeah. There, there, unfortunately, that that work seems to have pretty much dried up. I yeah. think it's it's a lot of um, people in their own apartments now, just you know, <laughs> where their home studios. It's true. Uh, turning turning out out a lot of that work. Um, it's definitely not the the scene that it was. Right. What what actually I think overtook the jingle scene in New York was the Broadway scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that seemed to be like the last kind of steady work you could do. And stay at home. Mm-hmm. So I, did, I ended up doing um, a fair amount of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but uh, yeah, now it's just um, you know I've been working on on this album and uh, touring with with uh, Boz and Michael. Yeah. Well, I've got a sort of uh, on the same track that you're talking about Broadway. Uh, our Chicago correspondent Brian Pearson. He also has mm-hmm. he sort of has a question regarding that work. He, and he, this is from Brian. He says, uh, being on tour as both as a music director, musical director, literally on stage and in front of fifteen thousand people, or by being on Broadway and leading right. the band in the pit, is the excitement mm-hmm. le- is the excitement level at the same rate? Um, and he says, I would, I would think that the stress level is at much higher level when you're trying to follow someone's lead in a play, you know? Yeah, that's a whole, it's a whole nother kind of, uh, headspace and, mm-hmm. and talent. I mean, basically, uh, what, when you're playing the same thing every night in the pit, you know, you're just trying to find something new, you know, and, and find something interesting you know, by playing the same music essentially all the time. And if you're lucky, you'll get a show where they, they give you a little bit of leeway. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of people just cannot uh, do that work at all because it's just, um, you know, too, too much the same. But I, for some reason, I, 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 I can get into that groove, and I don't know why that is, mm-hmm. but... Um, <laughs> You know, I, I kind of like uh, <laughs> repeating the same thing over and over, and and uh, and finding things that are interesting to to uh, to play over yeah. the, the music. Absolutely. Well, hey, I want to transition into something that I'm I'm sure you're you're going to be you're going to have more fun talking about, and that's your latest project, which is which is your first solo album, which uh, is due to be released, I think, on November first. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. Well, you know, Eddie and I have had a chance to listen to it, and uh, this this album is is unique in that it originated as a a Kickstarter project. And explain Kickstarter right. and how it helped you with uh, the production of, the, of this solo project. Well, actually, I think it, um, Kickstarter came a little bit uh, further down the road. It was just actually a group of friends of mine, um, and one particular friend uh, who's uh, also the producer and uh, engineer yeah. of the album, George. Pettit. Um, right. He uh, basically uh, spearheaded this whole, um, you know, fundraising campaign for the project because 
you know, the the record business has changed, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't think uh, labels are what they were, and um, making an album costs a lot of money these days. So, yeah. um, and uh, so he put together basically a group of of, of buddies, and uh, we started a fundraising project, and then um, we got into the Kickstarter thing, and um, you know, branched into Facebook, and um, that's that's basically how the project came about, and. Um, we were able to do it, you know. It's I, I think it's uh, seems to be the way more and more people are are doing it these days. And, yeah. Uh, luckily, it, it 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 worked out worked out great. You know, we we reached our goals, and um, uh, you know, I think the album. Um, I have to give kudos to George, the producer, because mm-hmm. it, it just it sounds great. It, know, it does. A great sounding record. Yeah. Um, regardless of uh, my 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 work on it or, or anything like that, it's a beautiful sounding record so um you know uh i think we accomplished our goal in in, in that regard yeah well let's, let's talk about this album i, I we, like i said we just re- received it a couple of days ago and i'll admit that you know um it's it's tough to not listen to this album yeah, really, <laughs> so, okay. because because it's it's really intriguing collection of music that includes some of you know your original work as well as some very unique arrangements of some classic tunes and i want to start with the first track on the album, which uh, again, this is another Steely Dan reference, but uh, it's that it's an unreleased track that they. Um, I, well, I think it was unreleased, but eventually made its way out on a couple of other you know side project CDs. But it was called Mega Shine City. Yeah, yeah, that was just a, a demo that uh, I came across. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and I think it was from uh, maybe the Gaucho sessions. Okay, and um, I always thought uh, there's lyrics to it, and I always thought it was called "Talking About My Home" because that's the refrain. Mm-hmm. Of the course, okay. Uh, but uh, when we contacted Donald uh, and Walter, they they informed us that actually the title is Mega Shine City. But I really liked. Uh, I just thought this is a, a great tune because, as I said before, it's I love playing uh, over their their changes. You know, um, it's basically a, a blues based thing um, with some sophisticated harmonies on top, and it's, yeah. That's always fun for me to play over. So, you know, like I said, I always like playing their tunes. So that seemed like a good one to play. Well, let's talk about yeah. the band, the band that you assembled for this project there. They were insane. I mean, they're just so much yeah. talent. You know, it's just uh, unspeakable talent. Uh, but uh, you uh, you uh, enlisted Will Lee on bass, um, yeah. you know, Vinny on drums, George Whitty on, mm-hmm. on keys, and not to mention, mm-hmm. of course, cameos by my Michael and Boz. But you mm-hmm. also um, utilized Monet uh, Owens. And uh, who's yeah. got also involved in this project? So I realize that you have a relationship with all of these guys, you know. Uh, but uh, tell us uh, how difficult it was in lining these people up there because they're very ex- they're busy themselves, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I was uh, I, I was reticent to to ask anybody, um, mm-hmm. but actually uh, George said, "Listen, um, you know, why don't why don't you give give you know Boz and Michael a shout and." Uh, they were so uh, generous. It was I was like flabbergasted. You know, yeah. they were they were like, yeah, sure, I'd love to do it. And um, uh, so that just you know, that was uh, just really was a, a great surprise. And and yeah. you know, I can't believe how generous they were to to offer yeah. their talents. Um, and they both, of course, did you know what they usually do, which is an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, so that that was. Um, Surprisingly easy, and uh, Monet, of course, uh, I've worked with for years. She's in, in Bosgek's band. She's fantastic yeah. uh, R and B singer. You know, one of the best kept secrets I think around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so that that was uh, pretty cool. Um, you know, I, I, I've I've known Will uh, in in New York uh, from New York for a long time, and and George Whitty as well, and. Um, uh, I, th- I hadn't met Vinny before the sessions, but uh, you know, really? I was just absolutely thrilled that that he had agreed to do it. And uh, you know, I mean, yeah, that's a just r- ridiculous rhythm section. You yeah, can't, you really can't improve on on those guys. Really. Yeah, well, the production on this album is is uh, is first rate. It's second to none. It's it's impeccable recording from start to finish, as me and uh, Rick can can definitely say. Um, but tell me about your relationship with uh, George Walker uh, Pettit and his involvement with the production. Well. He um, actually, he's an old, old friend mm-hmm. from uh, from college, and uh, you know, um, he, we, we've just stayed in touch over the years. And uh, a few years ago, he started bugging me about uh, you know doing my own project, and I said, "Well, yeah, if you if you want to get behind it, uh, I'd be honored." And um, 
and indeed he did. He's um, you know he's a fantastic guitarist in his own right, and uh, uh, obviously a great engineer and producer. And um, he's been doing that um, you know for for many years now. And um, uh, so he you know he's just been an old old friend uh, that basically. You know, as I say in the liner notes, uh, it's the, the 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 album is basically the fruition of just um, friendship, you know, and and uh, and a bunch of great friends of mine who are, who helped me out in uh, putting this whole thing together. Well, you know, I want to talk about another track on the on the on the album, and it's a very cool arrangement of the Commodore's classic song "Easy," and uh, you've got Michael McDonald singing on this one. But the you know the arrangement works so well. I mean, it's it's a bluesy, soulful rendition. And if if you weren't paying close attention, like right at first, you might not even realize that this is a cover of a classic tune until you really get deep into the lyrics. But you know, Mike's vocals are perfect. I mean, as usual. But but you know, what one thing I really liked about this were the backing sing- singers that they really I don't, was that just Monet or would you? Did you have a group uh, of singers? I think that's um, Monet and um, and and uh, maybe uh, George Whitty is is in there as well. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's beautifully produced. Uh, the background vocals sound fantastic, and that song is like something I never would have considered, do, you know, covering. But uh, George Whitty just came up with this amazing arrangement that, yeah. uh, I, I finally said, you know, we got to do it. You know? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. and, and when, when George, uh, came up with the arrangement, he was like, yeah, we, we didn't have Michael, uh, McDonald board, but he was saying, you know, this is going to be perfect for Michael. So, yeah. uh, it was wonderful <laughs> when he did agree to do it. Well, hey Drew, I think we should take, uh, another quick break and check out this track from your upcoming solo album. And like we mentioned, this one features Michael McDonald, uh, covering the Commodore song, Easy. And I hope you guys enjoy this amazing arrangement uh, from our guest today, Drew Zing. I know it sounds funny, but I just can't stand pain. Girl, I'm leaving you tomorrow. Seems to me, girl, I've done all I can. You see, I beg, stole, I borrow. That's why I need easy like Sunday, easy like Sunday morning. You know what I mean. I paid my dues to make it Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be But I'm not happy when I have to fake it That's why I'm I 
like Sunday, like Sunday morning. I mean, like Sunday morning. Drew, I'm really, I'm really impressed on on how this, your first solo album, how you covered really a, an awful lot of musical territory. I mean, um, it, it definitely tells us that you can play virtually anything. And, and what's most interesting uh, is that not necessarily every track is all about the guitar solo. For instance, uh, there's one track. Um, it's a ballad. I believe it's called uh, "You Make It Right When It Rains." And yeah. it's, it's actually driven by piano and with your rhythm and your soft solo parts, um, you know, you know, keeping it steady throughout. So you gave it a little bit of space that wasn't always about the guitar, you know. Um, I really found that really very fresh and also pretty unselfish for you as a guitarist on your first album, you know. I think that the, the main concept for the record, you know, mm-hmm. for choosing the tunes is musical, basically. And, and um, George Whitty, again, was kind enough to write a bunch of tunes for the record, and that was one of them. And, and uh, you know, I just said, we've got to do it. And when I heard, you know, the final arrangement, I I just, I didn't hear, you know, I mean, first of all, Monet is like, she's covering it all, and she's wailing vocally. And uh, I just didn't think it needed anything more than um, just a nice little accompaniment. Uh, and uh, I didn't want to disturb the beauty of, of mm-hmm. the moment. So that's, yeah. that's why I left it that way. Very clean, very nice. Well, if we switch gears and talk guitars, I want, I want to maybe throw out a little shop here for our guitarist listeners out there. And on your site, you show uh, your amp rig set up for your, your Boz shows. What kind of effects do shows with Boz require? Uh, I, we try to keep it pretty pretty simple. Boz, real, uh, just like me, likes uh, very straight-ahead guitar sounds. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, doesn't even like... You know any kind of uh, manipulation like chorus, really, uh, or um, a Leslie Simulator, which is the the organ type sound. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I tried them once or twice, and uh, it didn't go over too well. So basically, um, you know, it's very Boz really knows about guitar sounds. He, he's a great guitarist, and uh, he he plays. You know, uh, he's got a bunch of really wonderful guitars and amplifiers, and he mm-hmm. really knows how to get a good guitar sound. So. Yeah. And he's very particular about his guitar sounds, much more probably than anybody I've worked with, you know, including Steely Dan. Um, he's very, you know, knows exactly what guitar sound he wants on each tune, what guitar he wants. But basically, uh, you know, it's a pretty straight-ahead thing, guitar pretty much into an amp, you know, with some overdrive and maybe a little bit of a compression, but uh, not too much else. Um yeah, just, uh, you know, getting a good amp. And, and the amps that we've been using, both Boz and I, is uh, the Sur. It's S-U-H-R. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. we're both kind of kind of in love with that, that amplifier. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's also a fan of the Semi Hollow 335, which is my main axe, um, which is kind of unusual. I mean, especially when I was uh, 
you know, coming up in the 80s when I picked up that guitar, nobody else was really using them, and, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a unique thing. But uh, Boz is also a fan of that a lot, so uh, we play well together that Good. way, guitaristically. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, well, back to the album. There's a track called uh, "Dear Lord, What the uh, What the Hell Are We <laughs> Are You Trying to Say?" Right. Trying to say? Uh, this this yeah. this feels like the almost the perfect track to perform solo or uh, uh, live because it just has a guitar, bass, keyboards, and a little bit of Rhodes, you know, B three, and and straight drums, and it's. Uh, it seems as if uh, you kept this really clean. It's, it's, there's nothing unnecessarily added, like musical flavorings and whatever. It's almost like a less is more. Uh, it, that's a really nice track. It's, it's very simple. You kept it oh, clean. I'm glad you like that. Um, yeah, uh, Will Lee was, was, was nice enough to basically come up with that for the sessions. And mm-hmm. um, we, we kind of uh, did the arrangement on the spot. We did all, all the basic tracks over, I think, the course of maybe three days. So it was uh, it was pretty pretty hectic, but um, you know that's the way it came out. And um, basically, I think he did a little nod. There were there were two things Will was doing with that tune. One was uh, I think a nod to his good friend and my good friend actually, the late guitarist Hiram Bullock. Yeah, uh, I think he was kind of doing like in the melody. There's this this little technique which is called um, I don't know how exactly uh, what the term is, but um, it's kind of a, uh, you, you tap the string while you're bending it. And it was something that Hiram did a lot. Really? And he said he wanted that in there. So I think he really was kind of doing, and he knew that I was uh, a fan of Hiram's and a, and a friend of his, his as well. So there's, there's a nod to Hiram on that. And also, of course, as the song ends, it's kind of a faux-Asia type uh, moment where, where Vinny out Asia's Asia, like with, with his, his drum solo. It's just absolutely amazing. But yeah. um, So it's a little bit of a, a Hiram slash Asia thing going on there, I think. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the drum solo at the end of that tune is just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's what what what, uh, what Vinny does. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Hiram Bullock. And uh, again, one of our correspondents, the guy up in Chicago, Brian uh, Pearson, he says uh, on the new CD, there's lots of great covers uh, from the likes of the Commodores and Nancy Wilson. But he said that one that stands out for him is your homage to Hiram Bullock and his tune Cactus. Brian said that's always been a favorite of his and that uh, this was one of the – he feels like it's one of your best cuts. And he says, obviously, the love is there because it's a fine, fine cover with your own stamp. And he said, did you and Hiram ever cross paths in your career? Yeah, actually, we did. Which was that—that's um, a perfect example of of you know what I was saying earlier about New York being a place where anything could happen. Because I he happened to be you know probably one of my favorite guitar players uh, as I was coming up. I was a huge, huge fan, and we hadn't met. And again, I was just doing a uh, playing in a little bar, and um, at the time he was doing a, a wonderful show that you might be able to catch on YouTube and reruns. That was uh, this David Sanborn. Uh, I think it was called Night Music. Was the name of the show. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it was just a wonderful. It was on a, on Sunday nights. I think in like nineteen ninety ninety one or something yeah. eighty nine. I, I remember that. Yeah. And uh, it was just a great show uh, that David Sanborn was the host of, and um, Omar Hakim was playing drums, and Marcus Miller was playing bass, and Hiram was playing guitar, and they'd have you know wonderful uh, musical guests every. Every uh, week, uh, I, I believe, you know, anywhere from Miles Davis to NRBQ, and the band would play with with the guests. And it's, it's just, it was a fantastic uh, uh, benchmark of a TV show. I wish they could they could do something like that now. But anyway, um, uh, I was just playing at a club, and Hiram happened to be standing in front of me, and I was like, "Wow, that's Hiram Bullock. He's my one of my idols." And and he came up to me after the after the set, and he said, "Hey, Drew, you know, I'm doing this." TV show, show uh, with David Sanborn. Of course, I knew all about it. He said, you know, if I can't make it sometime, I'd like you to do it. I was just absolutely blown away. So, we, you know, we we became friends after that. I never got a chance to do the, the Sanborn show, but um, uh, I, w- I was a friend of his and uh, always a fan of his playing. 
Very cool. You know, you've posted on your website a few transcriptions that you played, a solo of Green Earrings and I think Peg, where, you know, you analyze the solo parts. And it, it states that the, these parts are very detailed and planned out. And, you know, I loved reading about what you were doing on these parts. And, um, you know, also how, I was thinking about, you know, how do you begin your own writing process? I mean, do you jot down your, your thoughts on, on notes? I mean, what's your process? Well, um, actually, it's a lot of it is just um, in my head, okay. you know, uh, which is one of the reasons why I like doing um, gigs that go on for a while, like, say, a tour or even a Broadway show for, you know, for, uh, for another um, example, is that uh, I like to live with a piece of music yeah. for a long period of time. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm often, you know, kind of singing. I think the best solos that I come up with are just things that I've kind of sung in my head over and over, and I think, oh, I could do that next time, and, you know, I'm kind of, like, uh, refining the guitar part over and over again. Um, so that's basically how I prepare, and it's kind of how I did this album as well. We did the basic tracks, and then I sat on the track for about a month or two and kind of let the, all the tunes simmer and until they felt, you know, really like, you know, kind of an effortless part of of what I was doing, and I didn't, I, I don't like to think, you know, yeah. when I'm playing. Yeah. So, uh, that's kind of how I do it, it's just basically, I don't really write anything down or, or anything like that, it's just yeah. basically um, internal. Okay. Yeah. Hey, there's this one track on the album that I, th- I thought it was really fun. It is a, a really nice uh, wah-wah type of bluesy track. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's called it's called Downstream, and uh, oh, yeah. it works really, really well. Who did the vocals on this? Did you do that? Did you sing that? That uh, that's George Whitty. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Wonderful George Whitty, uh, and he uh, just uh, came up with that tune again. And um, you know, he said, what do, "What do you think of this 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 uh, type of thing?" And I said, "Great, fantastic." I, I, I was in love with it, and um, it, you know, he just was was uh, killed on the vocals. So uh, you know, uh, he he took the vocal chores on that one. A track called One Off is one of my favorite tracks from your upcoming debut solo album, and I want to take another quick break, and let's check this out. From our guest today, Drew Zing.
Another track that uh, I'm actually a big fan of is uh, is the track you have uh, Boz singing lead vocals, and that's uh, of course "Save Your Love for Me." Oh yeah. It's, a, it's such a perfect track. It's it, for Boz. It's you know it's slow bluesy ballad. Boz really knows what to do with this track. You know it's a it has a real blues background. It's 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 such an outstanding track for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, th- how that came about was I was asking Boz. You know, I wanted to collaborate with him uh, on a, on a tune, and uh, I was asking him like, what would you want to sing on on this album? And and we we can't, I had a couple of ideas. I thought of like doing a, a remake of um, a couple of old tunes of his, and he was open to that idea. And then he played that song for me, and he, he was already familiar with it, uh, yeah. and he played it for me, and I said, um, oh, of course, that'd be fantastic. So um, that's how we came up with it. I think he, he might have even recorded it before, but uh, he that was his suggestion. Yeah. That, that tune. And of course, um, it's um, an old classic from uh, a Nancy Wilson Cannibal Adderley record. Right. It's a, a classic. And, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid to even attempt to, to sing it because uh, Nancy Wilson's <laughs> version is just so perfect. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, but, uh, I, I, you know, as soon as he mentioned that tune, I was like, yes, let's do it. Yeah, very cool. You know, we've been talking, we've been sort of uh, bringing to light just a, the, the, a couple names of some tracks that are on this album. We're talking about it, uh, even though that people really might have not had a chance to listen to it yet. So I hope that they're envisioning what we're talking about. But there's one more track that I want to talk about. And it's really, uh, I would say, uh, a guitarist's uh, effects fest because The Black Dog, that's the name of the track. It's a great, right. it really is a great track. But some of the, some of the other tracks on the album are pretty clean on effects and pretty dry and just straight up, you know. But you have yeah. to walk us through what you were thinking about when you were blending these amazing fec- effects on on uh, on the Black Dog. It's so eth- ethereal. It's there's so much space, almost haunting. Sometimes there's a at a one point I almost think at a uh, couple minutes into the track that it's like a Pink Floyd project. I mean, in a good way, you know. But you uh, know, it's funny because. Uh I, I have not listened to, to Pink Floyd that much, but um, <laughs> somebody else compared it to like a David Gilmore type of sound. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised to hear that, but I, who knows, you know, I guess I was channeling a little bit of Pink Floyd there, but um, without knowing it. But uh, that was, you know, uh, George Pettit's song, and uh, he basically was going for the darkest mood you could possibly get. And, uh, <laughs> it was beautiful. You know, I think he, he pretty much achieved it. Um, and I, I, I like the, uh, the kind of spaghetti Western vibe. That <laughs> yeah. Actually, that, that was, that was one, one thing. Uh, the, the tremolo guitar in that was, um, yeah. that, uh, was done by George. And wow, uh, that beautiful. was his idea. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a very cool cinematic uh, device, I think, that uh, really uh, gives a lot of uh, vibe to the tune. But uh, we were just trying to make it as, as dark a vibe as possible. And um, actually, I think we were having a little, a little bit of a hard time getting the, the, the vibe of the, of, the, of the track when we were recording it. And after one take, um, I think Finney Kaliuta said, uh, listen, I just don't know. I, I can't really get behind this tune. And George said, you know, just like you ever feel those times when you want to open up a vein? <laughs> and, then, and, and Vinny said, "Okay, I got it." <laughs> that's great. We recorded it. That's great. Well, you you said one word that's really the the one descriptor, and I think you nailed it on for the black dog, and it's cinematic. Because I, I I really think that this song is destined to be be in a movie sometime. I really do. Yeah. It's that good. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, hey, Drew, this is a fantastic album. We've covered a lot of territory, I think, with uh, you know some of the songs that uh, are on the on the disc. And again, it comes out uh, November first. And uh, where where, are, where can our listeners find it? Can they pre-order it now, or do they have to wait till November? Uh, yeah, you can you can um, purchase it from my website, which is dzdap, which is Drewzing Debut Album Project dot com. Okay, um, and I think it's also on um, uh, Bandcamp now. Okay, as well. Okay. Uh, and, and perhaps Amazon, um, not not iTunes yet, but uh, um, I, you you can definitely purchase it from my website. But you're going to have a physical product, right? There will be a CD, correct? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Hey, just real quick before we go, we've got a couple of Facebook questions I wanted to get to, and one is from Bill Block from New York City, mm-hmm. 
And he says, uh, Drew, who are your greatest influences? And also, early in your career, you played primarily with a Strat. These days, it's your Gibson. Explain that change as it pertains to the evolution of your sound. Um, well, my influences, uh, you know, uh, Hendrix is up there. And um, yeah. from all over, I mean, just, just uh, every kind of music and every, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Django Reinhardt, Jimi Hendrix, to Wes Montgomery. Yeah. Um, just uh, you know, uh, all good music is really uh, what I what what influences me. Yeah. Um, the guitar thing. When I was doing more of the singer songwriter thing, um, the Stratocaster uh, was kind of lent itself to uh, a lot of more different styles of music. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I came across the 335, and I, I'd always wanted one. But uh, after that, it kind of like, it just basically became my voice. And uh, that's, that's, you know, when I, when I found that guitar, I, I just kind of stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, which, which is, it, it's kind of, a, it's a bit of a uh, double-edged sword, because it's not the most versatile guitar, but uh, it definitely it just has a voice that speaks to me. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's kind of why I, I stuck with it through the years. Very cool. I think you may have covered, we might have covered this earlier, but uh, Candido Colon from uh, Bayonne, New Jersey, wanted to ask what was the first guitar you bought? And I think you covered that, right? Yeah, the first one was, was a, I think it was a 1970 Gibson SG. Okay, oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, right. Well, Drew, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Inside Music Cast. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I also want to uh, thank uh, George Pettit for uh, hooking us up with you, and uh, really appreciate that, George. Absolutely. Thank you, George. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's stay in touch, and uh, and I will definitely make sure to uh, uh, keep fans posted on uh, when, when your album comes out. And if Are you going to do any touring in support of this uh, this album or do some shows? Somewhere? Yeah, we'll be doing, um, we'll be doing some C release, CD release parties, uh, I believe, in the fall, and okay. then in the spring um, be doing some touring. Excellent. Excellent. Well, cool. We'll look for that and we'll keep everybody posted. So thanks so much again, Drew. Great. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Drew Zing for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.